Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. My guest today is someone that needs no introduction. I am positive that you all know exactly who he is, but on the off chance that you've been living under a rock, which, hey... Might be two of you. My guest today is a man named Will Putney, who is really, I would say, top of the heap as far as modern heavy music production goes. The man is a beast. We had him on Nail the Mix in December with Knock Loose, and it was just one of the best episodes we've ever done, straight up. He's worked with everyone with from Die Artist Murder to Body Count to Every Time I Die to North Lane, Norma Jean. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. You can look it up. Uh, I could bore you with like 35 sick records, even though he's probably made hundreds. But he's not just a pummeling producer and mixer. I would also say that he's a bit of an innovator when it comes to modern metal production. He's one of the dudes who took it from beyond just sounding big and polished to real big and polished. Like his records always sound like a band, but you know, sometimes when you hear quote unquote real sounding records, they have this like raw nastiness, which, you know, I don't have any problem with actually. I think some people do that super, super well, like, and are innovators in their own right, like, say, Kurt Ballou. But uh, Will has a way of combining that raw feel with with that big, big polished sound, uh, which I know a lot of people lust after and really, really want to know how to do it. And uh, he's also got some plugins out that are pretty damn innovative. Really interesting, dude. I will shut up. I present you Will Putney. Will Putney, welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. How's it going? As well as possible. Honestly, this isn't too different than my normal life except for no travel. I'm not trying to minimize anybody's pain or suffering, but I really needed to stop traveling for a minute. Sure. Yeah, it was getting extreme. So it's working out nicely. 
What about you? Other than some minor band disasters with my guys, it's been okay. I'm fortunate enough to be in a mixing stage of a record, so I was lucky to be able to isolate and get some work done. Other people I know were less fortunate and had to cancel some sessions and things like that. I know, you know, my band, which I don't tour with, but Fit for an Autopsy, had to cancel a tour a day into their tour. So that was definitely a mess, trying to get everything back and get dudes home and getting stuck with some bills, but... We climbed out of that, which is cool, and I'm actually in the middle of setting up a record for my other project, N, which just dropped like last week, so the downtime was kind of productive because I got to use it to get all the details done on that, and uh, otherwise just mixing, it's starting to feel kind of normal, although it's just weird not knowing what's coming, you know, but uh, I'm doing okay, could be worse, could be worse. It could be a lot worse. I mean, I have this theory, and I could be wrong, that uh, it's going to be an explosion when it's over, basically in that people are going to need services and products right away. And people who provide those are going to get overwhelmed like they never have been before. Sure, I'm excited when everybody gets to go back out, and I'm looking forward to bars and restaurants and things being packed and... Hopefully a lot of the small businesses get a surge of uh, income and customers so everyone can recover from this because it's, it's just a crazy time. I, yeah, like I said, I'm definitely lucky that I can work for myself, but I know a lot of people who are just like in damage control and have to wait stuff like this out. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully you're right. You know, hopefully there is an explosion of a big economic boom again once we kind of get back to normal and... Everybody can recover from it as fast as possible. I'm an optimist. Uh, I hope I'm right too, though. Then again, it could just be the beginning of Children of Men. So yeah, <laughs> there's always that possibility too. Yeah, you may have more stock in uh, humanity than I do, but that's cool. I still hope everything works out. <laughs> well, my stock in humanity is I trust their self-interest, basically. Yeah, I think eventually everyone will have to work towards a common goal of recovery so I'm holding out still that there's hope that it will hit a bottom where everyone will go, all right, we have to fix this, you know. And it's starting, I guess it's starting to happen. I think people are starting to listen and stay indoors and help control the spread of this. And, you know, at first it was like partying on beaches in Florida. And now it's like, okay, we're taking it seriously. So maybe hopefully it wasn't too late and a lot of people weren't put more at risk, but... I don't know. I guess we'll just see what happens. Well, I think part of what made a difference, uh, why I think attitudes are shifting, is when those kids uh, were, remember when that went viral with those kids making fun of of the whole thing and just like partying and like, nothing's going to stop me from my spring break. That went everywhere. And those people got so shamed. Uh, One of them actually issued a very heartfelt apology. And I think that this is the first time that I'm actually pretty cool with the whole cancel culture thing. This is, to me, a very, very warranted time to shame people because you're talking about life and death. So I think that a lot of people are just out of self-interest are going to want to avoid being on the receiving end of that. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, 
we like to make light at a dark time sometimes, and there's a lot of jokes in my uh, group chats right now that, you know, I would never say publicly, but in (laughs) in the end, it's like, you know, you have to take things seriously sometimes, and when there's a global crisis like this, and it's this intense, like, just pay attention and try to do your part to make sure it doesn't get worse. That's really all you can do, you know? I mean... I feel like uh, you developed your career in a time of crisis for the music industry. So, like, in some ways, I think that you're built for this because uh, you started getting known around 2010, 11, 12, you know? And that was when everybody was saying that the music industry was going to go extinct within 10 years and there'd be no labels left and the ground is falling out from under us and we just had the 2008 economic crash. Do you think about that at all in relation to now? Yeah, I mean, we were smart enough to see the angles maybe early enough when we were making records and we realized, okay, big studios are going away. Big budgets are going away. You're no longer going to be able to like bill for your studio and bill as a producer. You're no longer going to be able to live off of royalty checks because album sales are just in the toilet and all of that's gone. And we adapted the studio to be able to work, you know, affordably to be able to take on the right records when budgets were really shrinking and stuff. I was putting up bands at my house. I was like having them crash like wherever we could, like asking friends. Even like Machine had a few records where some bands were staying at the studio. The first, the Suicide Silence record that we did, those guys were living at my guitar player's house at the time just to make everything work. And like we kind of like, we rolled through the punches of that stuff earlier. And it didn't really occur to me at the time because I didn't have... I wasn't making records 10 years earlier, so I didn't realize how, like, much of a collapse it really was until, like, I talked to more older producers and more veteran guys who were around in, like, the 90s and stuff. And looking back on it, it's crazy. Like, we always joke that, like, man, if we were record producers in the 90s, everybody in this room would be a millionaire. Like, we'd be on yachts, like, laughing, like, barely working how crazy easy it was to do this job back then and now how all of these modern challenges with the digital age rolling through and that economic crash that happened, like how all of that made this job more difficult to, you know, be successful financially. But in in the end, like if you're good at your job and you make records that people care about and you design productions that people think are interesting, you're going to have a career in this field. People will still call you. Music's not going to disappear. It's just going to adapt to modern times, how it's delivered to people. But everyone's everyone still likes music. Everybody still wants to hear their favorite band in a cool way. And if you can deliver goods like that, you're still going to be around one way or the other. And I figured that out a while ago. And when I dove into this whole career full time, you know, it's when I realized like if I can do this right, I will be able to do this one way or another for a long time. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I think that, you know how people say that things are more oversaturated than ever? And it's not just in recording. They say that about photography, about, you know, being in a band. That's kind of just something that people use as a reason for why their careers aren't moving faster. But in my opinion and from observation, both from, you know, all the people that I've worked with back when I was 
recording as well as all the people that we've had on Now the Mix and the podcast. And then also through watching students advance, you know, from being just like beginners to having real gigs like Geo, for instance, what I'm realizing is that, yes, there's a lot more people doing this badly. There's more than ever. Obviously, back in the day, having a recording studio was financially close to impossible. So yeah, maybe you didn't have as many people trying to record, but people trying to do it well, who have that fire in them to get as good as possible and who actually have the people skills to not weird everybody out. Like that group of people is actually tiny. It's always been tiny and always will be tiny. So I don't think that the competition aspect has changed one bit, really. I think it was always hard and it will always be hard. But even if it's 100,000 people that are trying to record, there's still only a tiny, tiny amount of those who are actually trying to do it well. And then on top of that, I completely agree with you. If you do things that people enjoy, albums that people enjoy, mixes that people enjoy, if if you're enriching their life through your musical contribution, there'll be a way to make it happen. Music is age old. It's not going to go somewhere because a format changed. Sure. I mean, it was difficult to be a successful artist or record producer, you know, 40 years ago in a different way. And it's just as difficult today, like in its own in its own right. In, you know, the sixties, there were huge album budgets and everyone every producer and band was like a smash, but the cream rise to the top. These bands had to be incredible to get deals and these producers had to be incredible to get these budgets. There weren't as many, you know, for all the bands that were in the world there were only a handful. Like you didn't have all the options and the oversaturation like you had today. So it was so hard to even be in the public eye at that point. And now today it's easy to make a record. It's easy to pull up a laptop and be a record producer or be an artist and write music. But now you compete with a billion things that are out there. So it's just as hard to rise to the top and it's just as hard to get noticed in the sea of things now just on like a different style of scale. It's easier to get it off the ground, but now your competition is 10,000 times greater. Like you have so many more artists doing things in similar genres and in similar worlds in music that it's its own degree of difficulty now to separate yourself and to be unique and stand out in that big sea. So it's like, it's always going to be challenging. Like it's hard to be the best at anything, you know, saying like, you're one of the coolest metal bands in the world or you're one of the best record producers in the world. Like, that's crazy. It's so hard to get to a spot like that. And, you know, a lot of people who are in it maybe don't realize what that path is, like, and what the challenges, how those challenges appear and how hard it is to get ahead of other things or get noticed now. But the people who are truly dedicated to it, who truly care about it and are passionate about trying to make the best music and art, they usually break through it. You know, there's not, there hasn't really been a time where I thought, wow, everybody sucks right now. Like, this whole year was bad for me. Like, every year I find something where I'm, like, blown away still. Some new band always comes out and it makes me go, wow, this is awesome. Or I hear a record and I'm like, the production on this is crazy. Like, I still always hear this stuff. I'm still always impressed and I always find these things. So I'm not really worried about it. I do think the best stuff 
makes its way out there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Man, I remember in the 90s, the idea of getting signed was like winning the lottery or something. It was basically impossible. And that alone is so, so different. I mean, it's still difficult, but the scale of difficulty for that to even happen was orders of magnitude different. Sure. There was just... Way, way different. Just to be discovered was its own challenge. To be able to have a label rapper in A&R even know that your band exists back then was extremely difficult. Now it's like you could send an email. Now it's like you can look at Spotify and just see a playlist and see how many people like the band and know, okay, there's a fan base. Like maybe we'll we'll check this out. Like it's like eliminated the struggle of exposure, you know, in, in the modern times. It was an impossible feat before technology to even have people know you exist, you know? I remember going to shows in the 90s and people were mailing demos to distros in other states as a way to get people to like, hey, you should check this band out. Like literally putting a cassette tape in the mail because that's the only way (laughs) they could get somebody in New Jersey to listen to some band from North Carolina, you know, because financially it was impossible. You couldn't book a band that no one's ever heard and expect people to just go to the show. So there was like all this grassroots awareness raising just to get people to know that bands exist, you know? And that's just, now I can find some band from Russia today that just pops up on my Spotify. And it's like, I would have never heard that band as a kid. I would have never even known they existed. Yeah, impossibility. I remember also hearing about super successful bands like Dave Matthews Band or Hootie and the Blowfish, like those stratospheric level success stories or Disturbed or whatever. And those bands would tour for like five to 10 years unsigned, selling CDs out of their trunk and moving like 200,000 or more physical units themselves before they ever got known, which is insane to me. Now I know several people, as I know you do too, who made YouTube videos and Not that that's not work. It takes a lot of work to make videos that are interesting, that are high quality, that keep people engaged. That's its own grind. But I know people who did that, and they did that for five, six, seven years. And now they're in signed bands that pack houses. But the grind is always there, no matter what time period. 10, 20 years from now, there will be a different grind. It won't look anything like this, but it will still be just as hard, I think. Sure. It's always going to present challenges to get your name out there. There's no real shortcut to it, you know. When you decided that you were going to do this for real, how did you go about getting your name out? I think um, I just tried to do anything that I thought would connect with people, whether or not I was like, super passionate about the band or loved the particular music or thought it was going to be difficult or whatever the budget was. I was just like, I know a few people in New Jersey. I should go after some of these bands, whatever they can afford to do. I just think I should try to do these records because I know people will at least hear them. And if I do a good job on it, it'll lead to other things. It was like, I prioritize exposure over pretty much anything else. As long as there was like something decent As an art form, you know, so nowadays I would definitely be more pickier about the style of projects I choose or like the type of band. But when I first got started, 
I let a lot of that go, and I was like, all right, I don't, I don't have to love this, but if this band is at least good enough where I think I can make a record that people will like, I'm interested in it. I mean, I did that for years, you know. There's definitely stuff I recorded where, you know, I don't listen to or I wouldn't love to put on at any given time, but I, I knew it was important just to do things, take the opportunities I can get, and just do things that would help get my name out and that people would think sounded cool. So if it checked those boxes, I was just in on it. And I was working, you know, side jobs and I was working on their machine and bartending and like doing what I could to scrap together money to pay my bills because I knew this approach really wasn't going to sustain me financially either. So I had to like kind of hustle on the side just to just to be able to like exist and do it and just kind of hope that it would improve over time. So you're playing the long game. Yeah, it was more of an investment in myself, and I kind of realized that early, like, I'm not just going to walk into perfect record-making scenarios with my favorite bands, with all the money in the world and everything. It's just not going to happen, <laughs> you know? Even, like, I worked under, like, a very established producer who at the time was, like, the it guy in the world I wanted to be in, and he was getting offers to do all these records, and passing on stuff that I was like, oh, I would kill to do this, but I couldn't even get my hands on it because I was, you know, no one was interested in me. I didn't, you know, I was, I had no credits. I really had no experience and I was underqualified at the time to even do a lot of this stuff. So even with a guy like that, he couldn't really put me up for anything either. Like I wasn't getting the looks from, it took years before something would come in for him that he, he could even approach somebody about, maybe trying to get me to do and everybody said no nobody was interested in in the smaller guy you know for forever and i kind of had to just do it on my own it didn't really come from hand-me-downs or anything like that i mean i got the experience to be able to make my own records sound cool but i didn't really get any of the projects out of, out of it you know it was only by making good at records and doing cool engineering and cool productions where i think i started to get the interest from actual labels and things this is an interesting topic to me because this is something I hear from students a lot when talking about their goals. And mind you, I talk to people who are at all levels, but specific, I'm talking right now specifically about people very early on in their career. One thing that I'll hear pretty frequently is how do I work with the bands I want to work with? And the thing that I wish that they would understand, and I hope that they take what everything you just said in this context, that to get to the point where you're actually able to turn down projects and choose the kinds of bands you want to work with, that's actually the goal, right? That right there is what takes a really long time to develop. At the beginning, why would the bands that you want come to you? There's no, there's no reason for it. it even if you work under somebody like Machine at the time. And if for people who are younger, at that time, Machine was like the top dog in heavy music. So even having a gig like that, you still have to prove your own value. And people have to see that value in your work. It has to be a real, real thing. And so early, early on, I really urge people to kind of go about it the way you're going about it. Do whatever you can to get experience under your belt and do whatever you can to get exposure. And have you seen this meme going around? It's been around for a few years, but it's some 
musicians will post it making fun of people who offer them exposure. And it's like, exposure doesn't pay my light bills or some shit like that. Sure, yeah. And I think that that's such a bad attitude because, okay, I get it. There's scammers out there who will, they'll try to take advantage of you. Yes, that exists. It's a real thing. But, 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 real exposure, the kind that can actually help get your name out there is oftentimes worth more than the little bit of money you might have made, in my opinion. Sure. I mean, there's a difference between, you know, getting taken advantage of or just having to decide if you need to do a record for a low budget. You know, a lot of that stuff early on for me, it was like, this is all we have. They're not trying to rip me off or trying to pay me an exposure. It was just smaller projects, had smaller budgets, and, you know, the amount of work, you know, the amount of work it takes to make a record the right way, like, you know, I was working for less than minimum wage, but it was like I had to, it was the only way to actually do this record. And it wasn't because it was a greedy band or a greedy label. It was like, well, this isn't a big band. This is all they have. I understand that, you know, so it's it's tough to strike that balance and you just have to figure out ways to adapt and be able to kind of take on the right projects while knowing that at some point you might need to find another way to sustain yourself until you can get your worth up enough where this becomes your full-time living. How long did that take for you? You say years, but do you have any like somewhat specific amount of time that it was from when you were an underling at Machines to where you would say that you started to become in demand? It was probably... I'd say maybe three or four years. I probably worked under machine very green for about a year while trying to record bands. I started recording bands. I mean, that was the, the best part about that situation is I really didn't get paid anything to be an intern with machine, but he did let me use the studio when there was downtime. So I think like three weeks into my internship, I was recording my first band. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was just like, watching him, reading what I could and just figuring it out as I went type scenarios, which was like extremely challenging, but good because it's just like I just got thrown into the fire. And within like a year of that, I, I had developed enough of some engineering chops where Machine could actually like hire me to engineer on records. So I started to work on records with him for about a year, maybe a year or two while I was doing this, doing my same, like, side thing. I would just, like, do his engineering gig for the day when the band went home. I would work on my own projects, just kind of, like, sleeping at the studio stuff, like, bringing work home. After about, like, I'd say two years, two to two and a half years into my career, I slowly started to build, like, a little home rig so I can mix more at home, and I was just more productive having that balance, being able to take some work home and kind of just like work till I pass out of my bed. My mix rig was literally at the foot of my bed. So I would sit on my bed with headphones and mix and then just lay back and fall asleep. Like that's how <laughs> challenging that was in that time. But I'd say about a year of that, then the budget started to sh creep up enough where I was uh, fortunate to have that option where I could actually choose to record my own band because like for a monthly paycheck it probably worked out to be a little better than what I was getting paid by machine to just do engineering stuff so he would bring he wound up bringing in like another 
assistant, and then I started to just do some of my own projects. And then that separation slowly started to happen, whereby maybe three or four years in, I was just, I had kind of separated and was just making my own records. And then he was making his own records. He had a new assistant. And then I just kind of went, was off and running. So maybe three or four years, I'd say, before it was like, cool, this is good. I can basically live off this. I was broke, but I was able to pay all my bills and get everything, you know, I was able to sustain myself doing records. And then it kind of just grew from there. With how green you were, how did you get him to give you a shot? I know some some of our friends say that they actually prefer interns to be pretty damn green so that they don't come in with like bad habits and preconceived notions. Was it that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I fully agree with that. I take people who know nothing. And I think that's like if they're musically gifted and have like the right kind of taste and I like them and they have a sense of humor, like I would take that over a guy who worked at some other studio for 10 years, like almost any day, you know, because they'll learn exactly what I want them to learn. Like these are my, do it like this. I don't have to undo somebody else's process. Not that ever, not that my way is the only way, but at the studio, I kind of want my way to be the only way for, for certain things, you know. Your way is the only way for you. Yeah, and I've tried to do this with other more established engineers. Like we've tried to hire people before when we were looking for interns and assistants. And I always find that the guys that are more set in their own ways never work out for one way or another. And it's like, I don't know if it's just because we butt heads on methods or... I never actually get the thing that I was hoping I would get out of them. Um, And then everyone who's been here, like Randy and Steve and Gio and and Matt, like that's like the crew that's here right now, including me too, we all started knowing basically nothing. These are all like very musical people, a couple Berkeley grads, a great drummer, you know, two two drummers, two two great guitar players, you know, and we knew nothing about recording, but we were just interested in it, had good taste in music, and everybody's like can think for themselves and is a quick learner. So it's the perfect scenario every time for me. So I really do agree with that one. You know, I've had all my success with building our team and our staff with, with that mentality too. But yeah, I mean, it's like, it's hard to just get started I do agree that going to a place and working under a producer or an engineer whose work you back is the way. It really teaches you the right things to learn. You know, you really see everything applied the right way. You don't just learn what stuff is or what it does. You learn, like, why it's cool and how it's applied in, like, a real-time scenario. And it does beat any version of, like, schooling or online stuff I've seen. It is, like, the way to really dig in and crash course it. But, you know, it's challenging to find those types of opportunities, you know. When we put the word out that we need an intern or assistant, it's literally, like, I go through hundreds of messages to, to find a, a person or two. So it is com- it's highly competitive. But if you're doing your own independent work and it's already off to a good start, like, the right producers will take notice eventually. You know, I've, yeah. I've, I've heard some home stuff where I'm like, I know that this guy knows nothing about recording, but I can tell that he's going to be good because this is already like balanced in a way or there's like a vibe to it. There's already something there where it's like, he's going to be good. He just doesn't know how to be good yet. You know? Yeah. There's like an inherent musicality that you can spot. 
Yeah, I mean, I remember when Zach came in, Serini, who is now like a mega producer. God, he's so good. He was just doing his own stuff, and immediately his stuff sounded good. Immediately. And we, me and Machine were both like, he like doesn't even know what he's doing, and it's good already. You know, he was just like figuring it out with his computer, and you just knew right away, like, when he like gets the chops down, he's going to be a killer. We were like, no question. This kid's going to be awesome, you know? He did our bullshit for like a year or two. Then he went to L.A. He did Feldman's bullshit for a year or two or whatever. And now he's like one of the best producers in in this world. And it was like, you just saw it right away. When he knows what he's doing, he's going to be unstoppable. Talent is a real thing. I've heard some people who say that it's not. Like they try to come up with uh, scientific reasons for why it's not. But man, I grew up in a musical environment around talent. I've worked with so many people and some people just have it. They just have this special something. And maybe maybe there's a scientific uh, reason for it, that their brain is just formed in a way that gives them more of a natural aptitude for musicality or, you know, athletics, whatever it might be. But talent is a, is a very, very real thing. And if that's there combined with the people skills, those are the ingredients needed. Then you just need a mentor to to foster that, I think. And sure. I agree with what you said about the online stuff and recording schools. And I want to address that because obviously I have the online school. I always tell people that if they think that they're going to do URM only and get somewhere that they're deluding themselves. Like the thing that we provide is that the real recording schools don't cover metal or rock in a serious way. There's nowhere else to really, really get that stuff. This genre of music is not taken seriously. And so this is the first time that it's ever been taken seriously and that the people who actually make it are giving the classes. And that's awesome. However, that is not enough. That should be a supplement to everything that you're doing in real life. 100%. If you're not doing it in real life, you're not doing it. You're not going to get better. The other side to this is there's a cultural aspect to it of really knowing the art that you're involved in. And I think there's a, there's a really big disconnect there too. Because I don't think I am an insanely talented musician. I think there are guys that are much more musical than me out there who when they sit in front of a guitar or if they're going to write a riff or come up with an idea I think I can get out like a Jason Sukoff I just think I could get outclassed by a lot of guys on a, on a musical level I don't have formal musical training I'm not saying that that's you know the end all but I know that I can be outclassed as a musician by a lot of people but I do think where one of my strengths comes in is I was so immersed in this world I knew everything I knew every band Every hardcore band, every metal band that was on the radar, like, I just understood the whole culture, what works, why bands are cool, like, what's special about bands, what makes things unique, and I really, like, dug into that stuff, and I spent a lot of time seeing things react and trying to understand why, and I think that skill set that I applied to records is really, like, a valuable thing, and it's really something that kind of separates the men from the boys where it's like I'm approaching stuff with an encyclopedia of 
knowledge about why things connect in certain ways. And it's the, the whole other side to this. Like there's the musical side and the technical side, but then there's like understanding the whole art form and understanding why something sucks or why something's cool yeah. or like why that's not going to stick, like why a lyric isn't going to stick, why, you know, this riff isn't going to uh, come off as being this, as cool as you think it is because of various reasons. And it's like there's like being able to master some of that stuff and be able to produce things that actually will translate and will react the right way is like an unteachable thing. It just comes from you sort of educating yourself and understanding the culture as a whole. And it's not taught. It's just you do that or you don't. Like it's the yep. work and time and, you know, there has to be some sort of mental capacity to take all that in and understand why things are working and what makes a band cool and what makes a production cool that I think is just never discussed and people never, there's really no way to show somebody that. It's just an understanding you have to have. I think that that is one of the truest things I've ever heard about doing this. I think it goes beyond production, man. I'll give you two examples. For instance, you know, I've been in this world for 20 years now. I think I know it inside and out. And that is what has allowed URM to become what it is, is those years and years and years of knowing who plays what role in which way and what's considered good, what's considered bad. It makes such a huge difference. That's also the reason that, have you ever heard of this? Like when local bands would go to those one-size-fits-all type studios to try to do a heavy record and then they get with an engineer who's technically competent, but everything comes out sounding like shit because they have no idea what it's supposed to be like. They don't have those tastes developed. And it's the same thing. Sure, I mean, that's true on a local one-size-fits-all studio. It's also true for, like, the biggest producers in the world. Yep, you know, absolutely. I've seen, you know, you've seen metal bands go to the huge name, some guy never who exists works. in another world. I wouldn't say it never works, but I mean, you get some weird results sometimes and you're like, well, why? He's incredible. He's got Grammys. He's got all these, the guys want to, like a world-renowned record producer, but he just doesn't understand the art form. He doesn't know what's going to translate the right way. And then you get a record that falls flat. And it's just that that case happens a lot. And you could see those mismatches sometimes and you just know, like, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know, sometimes yep. the certain type of band has to connect with a certain type of producer. And, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to find people who understand your band, what it is you're going for, what makes it unique and what makes it special and like what the thing is you're supposed to be honing in on to stand out. And I think there are a lot of, it takes a while before you even realize you need somebody like that, you know, when you when it comes time to record. Yeah, you're right. I wouldn't say it never works. Uh, I definitely have heard a few successful collaborations. As a matter of fact, Machine was not a metal guy, right? when he was doing that Lamb of God stuff. No, I think Machine got Lamb of God by basically telling them that he just thinks metal is stupid. You know, like, <laughs> and they like that idea, but it brought out, you know, it brought outside-the-box ideas to a metal band, you know, that could have very easily been some normal-sounding Slayer-ish style record, but, you know, there were all these injections of this other stuff. Like, he was like a, a UK electronic music guy, you know, who was doing major label indie slash electronic music at the time and, like, had no business doing a record like Lamb of God, but he brought in fresh ideas to a band and he made 
a production that connected in a certain way because he he did the same thing. He understood what was cool about this band, what was going to react with people, and he brought the strengths of that out with a production. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like very difficult to pair up with people who get it like that, you know, especially when you're a younger band and you don't have all the options in the world and you can't get out of your town. Like, there are challenges in that. Finding that right person is not an easy thing. No. This actually, by the way, is why I always try to tell people that one of the most important things they can cultivate is their tastes because your tastes are ultimately what dictate all your decisions. Technical, artistic, it all comes from, whatever you do comes from your tastes, right? So if you don't have cultivated tastes, you're not going to have that understanding of what it is that's cool. Like riffs, man, it could be one different note or one slight displacement rhythmically that makes all the difference in the world. And if you don't have your tastes cultivated, how will you know? Sure. There are whole just genres that I'll avoid and types of bands that I won't do because I know our tastes won't align. And I know I'm just going to disagree with some of these decisions. Like when you say that, I'm going to say, I think that that is corny. My brain can't wrap my head around that lyric being cool. So we're just going to butt heads and I'm not going to make this record. You know, like I definitely have been in that scenario where I've realized like, oh, I'm not aligned with these people. And it's it's tough. It's it's not fun. It makes the job really feel like work and it's really not, you know, it's not rewarding at the end of the day to make that kind of music. And, you know, coming up, I had to sort of swallow some of that and realize like, it's better than nothing. You got to go through it. This is the opportunity that's in front of you. There's no plan B. You got to take this. And then I've like learned like, I try to get away from that stuff and only work with the stuff that I really understand because I think I bring more value to those records and I make better records for those artists. And that's like what I think if anything has kept me, you know, in in the public eye as a record producer or kept people interested in my productions. It's like I've been choosing the bands where I feel like I can actually do something special with this band and passing on the stuff where I'm like, maybe popular, the budget may be good, that's cool, but like, we're not going to be a good team together. Me and you are not going to see eye to eye. We're not going to make the right kind of record. I don't think I'm the best suited for it, you know? So being able to get to there is like the ultimate. For me, it was like that final level thing where I was like, yes, this is it now, you know? And it's like getting through all of that and that whole learning process of like, discovering where your tastes are best suited for bands and stuff. It's just that experience thing where, you know, there's no way of teaching that stuff. You just have to be in that room and do these records and go through that stuff. And, you know, back to, like, working under someone whose tastes you, you like, you know, who, whose productions you really vibe with and, you know, aspire to be like. Like, that's sort of, that's where that value just comes back in because you get all of that from that, you know? Absolutely. And what's interesting to me about it is that the successful use of your tastes and sensibilities doesn't have like a one-to-one correlation with what you listen to for fun, necessarily. That's that's the part that's really, really interesting to me. Like, again, the machine example, he didn't listen to metal, but there's something about his sensibilities that just worked for Lamb of God. And so I think people need to be prepared. And this is where having lots of different experiences and being open to whatever at the beginning will help because what your particular 
taste set or whatever really works best with, it really might not be what you thought. It might not be what you listened to. I mean, if it, it might be, but also might not be. You don't know until you're into it uh, several years, I think. Yeah, I don't produce my favorite style of music. I don't. This used to be my favorite style of music, but my tastes have changed over the years, and I listen to much less metal and hardcore than I did when I first started making records. And I basically produce none of the music that I really like. <laughs> and it's not, I would, I'm not, I just don't get the calls for it, but I understand what I'm doing and I understand what I'm supposed to do as a record producer in these scenarios with this genre really well. I have a good grip on it. So I'm not complaining in any sense, but it's not my preferred listening. If you look at my most listened to records, they're very far removed from my most popular records that that I've been producing in the past five years, you know? And it's like, that's just something I've come to terms with. Like, I'm scary, I do heavy stuff. Some of, the, some of these indie bands that I love are not going to call me, even though I am obsessed with their records and fully get it and would love to do it. It's just not in the cards for me right now. Maybe one day, you know, I'll have to sort of go back to the drawing board and work my way back up in different genres to kind of prove my value as a record producer again. And maybe one day I will do that. But right now, you know, I'm getting great opportunities. I enjoy what I'm doing and I'm just happy to do it. And I really like the results. And it's been very rewarding for me, even though it's literally not aligned with my favorite style of music at all anymore. So over time, everyone's taste will change and you'll find new forms of music that you're into and stuff and you won't be able to express those with all the records you make but at least if you have a, a really good grasp on what you're doing and why it's important to make certain things work and you know understanding the culture of the genre that you're working in it just has all that value for you and it and if it's not aligned with your favorite art form you know it's still fun it's still fun for me at least yeah like i don't really listen to too much metal anymore i actually listen to soundtracks a lot but I am so not in that world. I wouldn't even know where to start if I wanted to start really incorporating that. I would have to kind of start from the ground up. Sure. I mean, I'm I'm still in the world. Like, I know all the bands. I know what everybody's yeah. doing. If something is, is starting to make some kind of impact, I check it out. I want to see why. I want to see what's cool about it. Absolutely. I follow the trends and I follow what's happening so that I'm educated when I go to make records with bands from these genres, I know what's going to work right now because I, that's my job. That's why I'm being hired. I can't ignore that stuff. I have to stay. It's just like, you know, post-college like classes to stay. Like in any profession, like you still have to keep your education up. So I'm doing that on the regular. And then I find stuff that I think is awesome. So it always like fires me back up when I hear a band and I'm like, oh yeah, this is great. And then I'm jamming a, a, a metal record hard for like a month and, and I get excited about the genre again. You know, like admittedly it's happens fewer and far between these days than it, than it used to, but it still happens and it still keeps me like invigorated and excited to keep like making records in this world. But I definitely, you know, I still have to do my homework. It's still, you know, why people want to make records with me. I need that understanding uh, of the genre. So it's not something, just because it's not my favorite form of music anymore, it, it still can't be ignored because it's still my job, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, that's a huge part of my job too, is understanding what what matters now. Because 
man, I'm always looking for what band, what producer are kind of the the bleeding edge. Who's doing the things that are setting the trends? Who's elevating things? Or even just who do people really like a lot that I might not like, but for some reason, a lot of people seem to connect with this. It's super important to understand all of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you would do it the same way I would look at bands. You would be looking at producers. You know, we did a Knock Loose project together. I'm sure in your daily day to day, you're not jamming a Knock Loose record or. No, but I get it. Finding that band, but you understand it. You found, yeah. like, oh, I could see why this is reacting. I could see why people are talking about this right now. Like, you, you got, you had a grasp on it enough to know, like, yeah, we should we should do this. You know, this is something we should do together because this is important for certain, for a group of people. Yeah, that's that's a perfect example. It's not that I dislike them or anything. It's just not. You know, I listen to Muse and soundtracks and stuff. Like, not not loose isn't like what I jam, but it's it's plainly obvious why people love them. There's no denying it whatsoever. And yeah, it is important. Uh, I think everybody's tastes matter, and especially when there's something that is capturing the attention of an entire scene, it matters whether whether or not it's uh, your cup of tea. And that's actually something that comes up quite a bit with uh, Nail the Mix students. Like We have a, a certain percentage who will complain if they don't like the band or something. And I really think that's dumb because as a producer, as you know, as we're talking about to get to the point where you're only working with bands that you really, really like, that's a luxury. That's a lofty goal. You should be open to learning from anything at the beginning, in my opinion. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I reference a lot of records where I literally hate the band, but I think the production is cool, so I have to get past that. There's, like, the occasional, like, radio rock record. Or, I mean, I forgot what I heard recently. It might have been, like, I, I don't know. I don't need to air a specific band, but there was, like, a certain radio rock band that is just so bad to me. I just think their music is, like, selling a bottle of ketchup. <laughs> it has no purpose to exist other than for like the lowest common denominator person it stinks anyway the production is incredible and i found myself i'm listening to this like record as like a reference for hours hours of this just terrible terrible music to me it's i can't even i can't even fathom how long uh, that had to just enter my brain and I'm like digesting it. I'm listening. Look at the space between this horrible guitar riff and this like horrible vocal. And I, I was just, I love the production and I learned from it. I found like a, you know, I heard a trick or two and I'm like, it, it fixed some low end for me in a mix. And I'm like, I applied you know, what I learned from that to a record and my record is better because of this terrible band, you know? And so it's like, you got to get past that. I mean, you're not going to like everything, but if something's incredible, if something is reacting the right way or it's that good, there's still something to learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of interesting to me, man. I One thing that I'm really enjoying about talking to you right now is hearing that you've still got enthusiasm for music because I'm sure you've noticed musicians and producers who've been in it for a long time can sometimes start to get really, really bitter about new music and very cynical about it and kind of close themselves off. And to, to me, that's death. And one thing that I think is, I've noticed this with uh, some of the most successful people that we've 
we've had on, like we had TLA on right after you. And one thing that I found very inspiring and refreshing about him is that the dude still loves music. He's like a child discovering a new toy or something when it comes to new music. Like that wonder hasn't gone away at all. And I see the opposite so much. And I, I think that that's death. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll i be the first to admit there are definitely times, there have been times where I've started to get burnt out feeling and I'm like, Natural. I, you know, this is like becoming a job. I'm, I'm sort of like not enjoying this daily workflow I've got going on here. It's just punishing. And we've had some stretches where we just had so much work that it started to feel like work, you know, and I had to like do a quick reset and be like, you know, a few years ago, I kind of had hit a breaking point of like, this is just too much stuff. Like I'm doing too many things. I have too many projects and everything. You know, I was like in that mentality of like, I got to like strike while the iron's hot. And I have to just like, if I think a band is worth doing, I got to figure out a way to do it no matter what. And I was like, so, so overloaded. I'm glad I went through it because I do think I would have regretted bailing on some of those projects. But I realized like, I'm not the best producer if I feel like I'm, if it's feeling like work, if I feel like I'm kind of getting burnt out or I'm over this music or over this band. So like I did take a step back and say, all right, I'm going to do this year where I'm going to just do what I want. And I don't care if it's, if I make less money than I did the year before, like I can live, I can pay my bills, everything's fine. And I'm just gonna, just gonna do cool stuff. And I had a lot of fun that year. And it was like new bands, stuff I hadn't done before. And a lot of it, like, I think my productions got better. I think I tried a lot of new stuff because I felt more inspired. And it was just cool for a minute to be like, I'm just gonna do what I want. You know, I started a new band. Like, I wrote a bunch of music for the first time in a while. I was just like, I was just living it, like, just really enjoying a lot of the stuff I did. And now I just feel, like, fired up again, you know? And I think, like, if you start getting to that point where it's feeling like a job, you do need some kind of, like, reset on that, you know? It was very helpful for me. I could see some of the older producers who were just phoning it in now. And I don't blame them. I mean, how, you know... 40 years of making records, like, you might just get over it. You might just be tired of hearing that same story from a band and dealing with a bad guitar player in the studio and this and that. You know, it's like, it's just, eventually it could wear you out. And I hope, like, I could just stay inspired long enough where I can kind of have a great career before, like, that stuff starts to kick in, you know, cash out when my ears go and just get out of here. (laughs) Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. 
Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. I've got kind of some thoughts on the topic of burnout. I do think, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, that there's a difference between burning out and realizing that something's not for you or that you're just done with it because I've done that twice. Like There came a point in my life where I no longer wanted to do a band than pursue being an awesome guitar player like that. I did 20 years of that and I got it out of my system. I knew after a certain point when I would pick up the guitar, I'd be like, there's nothing left to say. That's that. And I kind of started to feel that way about production too. I started to imagine, okay, what if I put another five years to this and really keep on getting better and, and this goes places? Is this what I want to be doing? And the answer was no. So that's different though than... It is what you want to be doing, but it's starting to be a complete and total grind and it's wearing you down. And you need to be able to understand the difference between the two. The grind thing is very, very real. I remember one year in Florida where I had bands staying at my house for 11 and a half months straight with no days off. And it was just heavy band after 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 heavy band. After heavy band. And I mean... That shit was intense and you had to figure out ways to reinvigorate yourself and to not let yourself get worn down because it will happen. Sure. It will definitely happen. I've been through the grind where I've like, like 2019, I had five days off, five days off all year yeah. for like a wedding and some other thing. And I think I got sick once and that was like it, but it, I was fine. Like I've, I felt good. I was like very goal oriented and I ripped through. So many records last year, like we did with basically no days off, like where a band would end the next day, a band would start and we, I would just be mixing on top of the next band and just like nonstop me and Steve were just marathon ripping through the year. Like we did knock loose into Norma Jean, into stray, into body count, into counterparts, to the ghost inside, to the uh, Great American Ghost, into Four Years Strong, and I basically did those records with like and some o- and other projects too, other outside mixes and mastering gigs, 
with no day, like no days off. And if that was a few years ago where my head was, I would have been way over it. But it was great. The whole year was awesome. I had a blast making all the records. I don't regret any second of it, you know. And it was a really good, successful year for me. And a lot of the bands had their kind of some of their bigger releases. And it was great. It was just like a win all around. But like I was in the right headspace to do that kind of grind. And if I wasn't, it would have been a nightmare. So it's like you just have to know your limits and you have to know when it's time to like reevaluate what you're doing and what you're really passionate about. I had fit for an autopsy going and we were like kind of part-time touring and starting to pick up speed like when I started shortly after I started working as an engineer or an intern with machine that band sort of got off the ground and like almost immediately I was like oh yeah I'm not going to be touring anymore like this is this is not for me anymore like we did one or two tours and I was like yeah, I had decided that I would rather be a record producer. Like, I want to be in everybody's band. I don't want to just do one thing, you know? So, like, that was, like, almost immediate for me. I was lucky to kind of have that, like, sort of come to Jesus moment where I was like, yeah, this is, like, this is definitely more of, like, the path in this musical career that I want to take. I definitely had to take a second and think about what I really want to do with my career, what I really want to do as an artist. And if I didn't do that, if I didn't, like, really give it some thought and really, like, do the deep dig on it, like, I might have suffered greatly. I might have been dragging through some tours for two or three years, missed the boat on this opportunity, and I might not even be a record producer anymore, you know? So it's like, I uh, I think it's important to just figure it out, like, what you really want to do and kind of get your head clear on it. I definitely think it makes you, wherever you wind up, I think you'll wind, whatever path you take, I think you'll wind up in a better spot mentally doing what you decide is right for you, you know? Yeah, 100%. I think there's this weird stigma about this sort of thing. Like when people say like, you know, it's all about mindset, you know, it sounds like cheesy self-help or like thinking about your goals, like that kind of stuff. It's got this like infomercial kind of self-help book sort of vibe. And so a lot of people shy away from it, but it's so, so important to be able to be in the right headspace because if not, you're not going to do your best work. If you're not doing your best work, that word of mouth that propels you is going to start to change and people are going to start to feel like you are a drag to be around. The overall quality will start to diminish. And uh, like you said, you might miss the boat on the true thing that you have to do. And that there's also... The issue that I think many people are pressured by external sources. So if they've put a lot of time into something and it becomes a part of their identity, like say being a musician in a band, right? A lot of people, that is a part of who they are. They see themselves that way. And then what if they realize really quickly and like you did, this is not really for me, something else. But then they're, is this whole uh, mental aspect of how other people will see you, how you see yourself and this identity crisis. And I think that that stops a lot of people from being honest with themselves about what the next step really is. It's really, really important, I think, to forget what other people think, forget about those identity issues and really, really just be be truthful yeah. about what it is you want for the future. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely worked with 
guys who were who have struggled with that who just knew they didn't want to do a band anymore you know like deep down you could tell they're over it like this isn't going to be the thing that they're they're not going to be doing this in five years you know and for a while like we had the joke we would call them like burger king bands because they're like well they're only touring because it's better than like being home working at burger king you know like if they (laughs) didn't you know there's like fear of like making that kind of move too because especially with a lot of bands who get started early on let's say they don't have a college degree unemployment is a disaster like the job market sucks and it's scary to be like i don't want to do the band anymore i know this isn't right for me but what else can i do you know and not even having that clear angle is definitely like a stressful thing and i think it keeps a lot of bands if a band is doing relatively well it definitely keeps a lot of bands from actually breaking up because there is no plan B sometimes. Like, there is no, oh, I'll just go home and I have this thing to fall back on. Some people aren't fortunate enough like that. Like, they've given their lives to this project. It's everything that makes them up. And if that goes away, they have no platform anymore. They have no way to support themselves financially. Like, it can be super scary, too, at the same time. So, you know, it's it's finding that balance and that goal to work towards and trying to get out of a situation you don't want to be in. It's not always super easy to just be like, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm just going to do that. I think it takes a lot of planning. And I'm fortunate that I've always been able to work towards a goal and it seems like I've been able to obtain the things I've wanted to obtain by grinding my way towards it. But I don't think it's easy to just pull yourself out of your life's work and identity all, all the time for everybody. So it, it would have no. its challenges. Oh, it's definitely challenging. Uh, for instance, when I knew that I needed to move past the band was two years before I did. And when I started URM and stuff, like I had been plotting that for two or three years. It was in Florida for like one year or a year and a half. And I realized not for me, I need out. No, just no. But I couldn't just drop it. That's dumb too. I've seen people do that. And then what? That whole then what question is a very real question you you have to answer. So when I made my transition, it was years in the making. Like I'd done creative live classes for several years, had built myself up in this way, and was getting a lot of shit for it, but I did it anyways, and established myself in a way that making that switch would work. So it wasn't just, ah, this isn't for me, I'm out. That would be really, really dumb. <laughs> I don't suggest people do that. Right, yeah, I mean, it's tough, man. It's definitely a challenging time to do anything in the music world, you know, especially if you're trying to build something from scratch. You just have to make sure you're in for the long haul. You know, I think a lot of people who we've worked with who haven't really, their careers haven't really gotten off the ground or whether it's a band or an intern or an assistant, like it's just obvious that they're kind of one foot in the door, one foot out. But if you know it's really for you and you have, you're honest with yourself with your abilities and you think you have the confidence to actually make something work, like you can figure it out and you can grind it out. It just isn't easy. Nothing worth it ever is though. Yeah, I guess so. Speaking of, did you have a fallback plan? I mean, this is this is interesting what you said about the fallback plan because on the one hand, I feel like plan B is a really dumb idea when you're going for something in music because if you work on a plan B, how are you going to get good enough to compete with the people who are talented, driven, and are making it their entire life. It's going to be really hard 
to get good enough. I didn't have a plan B. I just like when when I got the opportunity to work with machine, I was in college at the time. I was going for something completely different, totally unrelated to music. It was a smart person degree. Yeah, I was I was in school for biomedical engineering and I was like on about the la- I was somewhere in the last year because I started stretching classes out and I kind of extended my stay at the school so I was like getting a four-year degree in five years basically because I had been working with uh, machines so much I just like couldn't I was barely taking classes you know at that point and um, I just dropped out of school I was like I probably have a few classes left for that degree and it would be done and I was and I I just quit actually dropped out i respect that by the way it well i got this ultimatum like i actually got the it was i think uh armor for sleep first record i have like first major label record i had ever engineered or anything like that and machine you know brought to me he's like i want you to engineer on this but if you do this like i can pay you but you got to be here every day like this is the job like do you want this job now it's happening or do I have to go get somebody else? And I was like that there, it was the fork in the road decision time for me, you know? So I just went for it. Yeah. I never really had a fallback plan. I was just like, I'm not an idiot. If all this crashes, I'll figure it out. I could bartend what, you know, I just didn't, I didn't know. I didn't have a plan B. I didn't even really give a thought. I was just going for it. And I just figured, We'll just see where it goes, and then I'll just make... And then if it fails, I'll just reassess where my life was at. But at least I went for it. The whole fallback plan thing does not make sense to me. I think you got to go all in. So speaking of interns, I think it's really, really cool that Geo Hewitt's a part of your team because obviously I love seeing XURM students succeed. But I'm not asking this as like uh, how to get a job with Will Putney type question, more of a, when somebody hits you up, what is it that makes them stand out to you? Like why Geo and not somebody else? Like what is it that gets past the gate with you? And then not only gets past the gate, but then keeps them there. And then not only keeps them there, but gets them hired. I guess it's tough because it's always situation dependent. You know, there's been times where we had the luxury of like, oh, we don't really, we'll just grab somebody when the right guy shows up and we were able to be pickier here and there. And I always try to get, if somebody sends me a message or a resume or anything like that, I always like get a look at them, go online, try to see what they're doing, see what kind of, if they make any records, what anything sounds like. So I think the people that I'm the most, that we've always been the most interested in have been the kids who clearly have musical ability who are doing stuff on their own, like I said before, and like don't know what they're doing, but it already things are already starting to sound good. And then an understanding of like being involved in the actual music scene, however, like just the knowledge of knowing the subgenres and knowing the things that we do is super important because having somebody come in who's very talented, who doesn't get the music we make, creates problems. Like we just aren't going to click. They're not going to understand why I'm doing certain things. They're never going to be able to really become that producer engineer here that, you know, we'd want them to be because they just aren't going to grasp, like, why things are cool or why stuff sounds a certain way. So it's like I kind of, like, keep an eye on kids, and I've gotten hit up a lot by 
people who I do think are talented, but I could just tell like, yeah, but I could see the stuff they're listening to and I could see the types of records that they make and it's just not something that I think is going to work here, you know? And that eliminates like a lot of people because we have a specific taste and a style and there's like certain things we try to avoid and, you know, honestly, like that kind of chops the head off a lot of applications right off the bat because I could just see like, yeah, they're not really dug into the stuff we are. And then, you know, I'll meet people who are like, you know, Gio's a good example because he was like, he got into Berkeley, but he got out of Berkeley pretty quick because he didn't care about being a good guitar player. He was more interested in music and he was very involved with the Massachusetts scene and he knew a bunch of the hardcore bands and he was like trying to be in bands and tour and just like play shows and he was writing music and he had his own little studio set up and he was like, I will come to New Jersey and live there. I know nothing. I have like, here's what I have. Like I'm broke, but I'll like figure it out, you know? And it was like, he was all in on it before we had it, you know, I could just tell before I had even talked to him that it's like, he's, he's serious about this. Like he's, he had an opportunity to go to one of the best music schools in the country. He was talented enough to go to a school like that. And he just, and he bailed on it to just try to figure out how to record hardcore bands in like his parents' house. I'm like, this kid really wants to do this, you know? So it was like, you just saw like, he was already making those decisions. I didn't have to convince him to do anything or say like, hey, you, you know, you should probably think about like maybe doing this on the side or like there was, it was like already headed in the way where I was like, I saw that this is just what he wanted to do. And I saw that he was talented enough to be able to do it. So it was like a pretty easy combination of things to, to get him through the door here. And like, that's usually the case. I mean, that's everybody we've kind of had through here kind of fits that criteria where they're thinking for themselves and you could see there's like clear ability there, but they're not, you know, they're just, they're just like kind of lost trying to find the way to make it work for them. And that's like where it's been really successful for us. One of the things that I find really, really cool and interesting about your setup, I don't mean the not involved in the recording part, but a lot of what I've heard about Rick Rubin in the way that he picks people, even though, you know, people say that he doesn't record stuff. You actually do a lot of the dirty work. So that's not what I'm implying at all. That, But like, he's always been known for picking really good teams on records. That's like one of his strongest suits as a producer is what team am I putting together for this album that's going to make it the best it can possibly be? And when I was at your place, it really struck me how organized it is between everybody and how well everyone understood their roles like it's like it's a really good team that's actually really hard to pull off yeah i mean it took forever to get to where we were to be fair like it was years of working with randy now it's awesome that randy's his own guy like we haven't made a record together in a long time but like getting randy to the point where he could be hands-on on records took forever and then getting Steve up to like that took forever and Matt and Gio and now it's like it was just investment in everybody here to be like do it like this like here watch me do this now you do it okay learn this you're you know like what the walkthrough over and over and like everybody's sitting in on things you know everybody who's here at some point had just sat on the couch in my room next to me for like hours just watching me mix something and then occasionally would be like 
why are you doing that? What's this? What's that? It's like this is this investment of people to kind of cultivate the their abilities up so I can have a team like this. Like it's not easy. Like it definitely is worthwhile to do, but it, it, it was like a lot of work and a lot of like paying underqualified people to hang out for a long time until they were qualified. You know, it's like you have to have faith in, in your guys and bring them up like that. And we've weeded people out. Like we've we've had people in and, and they've worked themselves out of here, you know, because it wasn't going to work. And it's like, you know, sometimes sometimes it always doesn't work. But going through all that to get to our team was, was hard. But, I'm, you know, I'm really happy with everybody that I've worked with and everyone that's here and very grateful that I have dudes on my team that are as as down as they are and as good as they are at what they do i mean steve is just like steve is the best man he Steve's is awesome just, he calls himself the audio janitor now he's just <laughs> the, the most professional audio janitor in the world <laughs> that poor guy gets hit with some stuff sometimes where i'm like here's this mix it came in i am sorry <laughs> and i get and i sit down and and it's like ah oh, man he's just invaluable you know and like yeah, it was just this is just some guy who listened to metal records in New Jersey who had never recorded in his life, and now he's just one of the best, you know. And it, it's just cool. It's cool that we've been able to like grow together and have success together and stuff. So I'm just excited that we have the right guys here. So you know what I think that you're doing that's really smart, and I'm gonna give myself credit here because we do this too. But um, the idea of investing in people, not in skills. So like, for instance, you know, Nick, when we first took him on, that kid didn't know how to shoot or anything. I mean, maybe it fucked around with the camera a little bit, but that's not why we hired him. We didn't hire him because he could do the role that he's doing now. We hired him because we knew he was the right kind of person for where we wanted to go with this and had the faith that if we just invest in him, that it's going to be a good thing. And we have a few other people like John Maceo like that too, that you invest in the person if they're the right kind of person. And if they don't have a skill, they'll learn the skill. That's the easy part as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, Nick is great. If you would have asked me like, hey, where do you think we got Nick from? I would have been like, oh, you probably hired him from some pro-level corporate company. He probably was into music and really good at video. And you nope. just and you just like poached him because he was passionate about music. No clue that he didn't even know how to use a camera. You know what I mean? Right. You gotta like be able to spot the right kind of person and then cultivate them and possibly go through a bunch of people who aren't the right person. It's not gonna be easy because the right kind of people are rare. But I'm sure you would agree that your career would be very different if you didn't have a good team. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, that one year where we were really, really crazy here, might have been like 2015 or 2016, I really relied on, on my team to do a lot of stuff. And I think without them, it would have just been impossible. You know, at the time, Randy was here and Steve was here and, and one of our old engineers, Tom Tom Smith, who's now, he plays in the Acacia Strain now. Um, he was He was here for a good period of time too. And did a lot of really, really, really helpful work with us then. And at that time, like, those guys really came through for me. It was really a lifesaver for, for me. And, and a lot of my careers owed to the guys who helped me. Another thing that you do that I think 
is really smart, which I've seen a lot of people not do. You are invested in their success. So like with Randy, for instance, you worked him up to the point where he's now, his, like you said, he's now his own dude. Like you're not working on records together anymore. That's a great thing. You're investing in their success with the understanding that if this goes well, there's going to come a point where they're no longer working for you because that's the that's the natural order of things. That's how it happens. Whereas I find that some people are very threatened by that idea. And so they won't invest in their team quite the way they should. And the amount of work they do uh, suffers or the quality and the amount suffers as a result. Sure. I, I see that a lot. I mean, you know, Randy's a great example because Randy earned his ability to be his own record producer. Like that guy got his ass kicked for years here as far as his workload and going through records and stuff. And it would be crazy to think that he could do that forever. I've definitely chatted with other assistants and engineers and like house guys at other studios who like are under that foot for their whole life. And I'm like, man, that's just crazy. I mean, I've seen it before, like those assistants that have no way to get up in the ranks because there's some kind of asshole producer who just like refuses to let them be their own guy or do their own thing. And I don't know, it's just, why would somebody want to work for you if there's no, you know, way to climb up or there's no way to get out from under that? Yeah, I mean, Randy got to this point where it was like, I'll get an, I can get another guy and we could start trying to get you records. And I was going to bat for him. Records would come in and I'd be booked and I would just be pushing Randy for it. And like getting him in with some of the labels and some of the bands and knowing that he would come through and deliver, like it didn't take very long. He just like, now labels will call him like no problem. You know, they'll, he'll just get hit up to make records like without me having to do anything, you know? So it's like, yeah, it, it, it's like if you know your guys are good and they get to that point and they want to be their own dude, it's like, why wouldn't you just support them at that point? You can find another engineer. You could teach somebody else. Like, not saying that he's replaceable because he's awesome, but it's like I know there are more people out there. There's more people to have on a team, and it's just another guy, you know, who's talented, who's now able to do what he wanted to do from the beginning. It, it's not about them being replaceable. It's about them kind of graduating in a way, you know? Yeah, no, I think I think it's awesome. I definitely encourage all the guys we've had here to try to make their own records. And if there's a scenario where I think it can make sense where we can kind of do stuff together. I mean, we have a record coming up in May where um, me and Steve are going to probably co-produce a record, you know. And and we haven't really done, we've only done that like once, but now we're like kind of getting to that point too where I think he's going to be really hands-on with a band and... I'm excited to do it. I think it's just cool to do. It solves problems. It makes life easier. Like letting your guys grow to that point where you can rely on them and count on them to do anything you can do is is very awesome. It says a lot that you're not threatened by it. No, I mean, I don't think I have to be threatened by my own team, you know. Well, some people are, man. Like that situation that you're talking about where we know people who are underneath the foot of a tyrant Um who will not let them advance. I actually know what that's like. I'm not naming names, but I know what that's like when people don't want you to advance. Uh, it sucks, but it's out there. They're like It's a very real thing. And I actually think that the way you're approaching it is a lot more rare in the music industry than it should be. I think that's how everybody should be with 
the people that they hire. You should want the best for them. It's even if it's for purely selfish motives, even if it you don't have like an altruistic bone in your body, you just for selfish motives, like you're going to get loyalty out of them if you're helping foster their own greatness and helping them develop their own skills and treating them like an equal like a like an equal human being. Like maybe you're the boss, but you're still equal humans. Giving them that respect and that care, even if it's just for self-interest, is the way to go. Because again, you're gonna get you're gonna get more out of them. Yeah. I mean I agree. I think um like I said, if my guys had a ceiling, I don't think our team would be as good. I yeah, I'm just glad we don't run run it like that here. Yeah. So all right, I don't want to take your whole day up. I know that you probably have 18 million things to do, but we do have some questions from the audience because, you know, obviously they're excited that you're here. So do you mind if I ask you some of them? Sure, go for it. Cool. So Ryan Bruce is wondering. Oh, God. <laughs> what up, Ryan? What's up, Ryan? <laughs> you know what, man? Uh, when I saw that he asked the question, I was like, all right, <laughs> what's this going to be? Shout out to he, Fluff. Yeah, he, 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 he's, he's a good troll sometimes. But, yeah, uh, here we go. What do we got? He's wondering, <laughs> uh, what was your favorite album you engineered or worked on while you were working with Machine? Ah, that's a good one. A real question. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was a real question. I got two answers. The, that, arm, that first Armor for Sleep record, because it was the first one, was crazy for me. This was just the first record where I tracked guitars for him for, and it was like, I don't know, maybe sentimental reasons or whatever. I had a lot of fun doing that one one of my favorites uh four years strong i think the four years strong record we did because I, lo I love those guys it was super fun and they're so talented as musicians it was like one of the first times where i really worked with dudes who had such a good grip on what they were doing i don't think at that point i had worked with talented people like that not a slight to the other bands that were before them but dan and alan from that band are just like animals man they're crazy good at everything and um it was really inspiring to be like oh wow there are people like this in the world like this is going to be cool i want to do more stuff like this yeah that they, they, that was definitely like a highlight early on when i was doing stuff with machine all right so joel monet is wondering are there editing techniques that you consider off the table during tracking for more quote-unquote raw sounding music nothing's ever off the table it's always based on the given source material like what are we trying to do like it needs to sound a certain way sonically for wh whatever i'm going for and I, I never limit myself there's never a time where i'm like okay you can't do this because it's this kind of band like it's all just about the result like if i can't get if i have to edit it harder or softer or if i can't get the take as this is a solid performance and i have to break something down or punch a specific part i don't have any sort of limits to that i guess it's just like it's got to sound the way it's supposed to sound no matter what. So however intense we have to get, we're getting it right. The results are what matter. Yeah, that's all I care about. I'm not a purist in any sense of the word. If I have to edit something, I will. If it has to be harder, it will. If they have to play less of a part, it's fine. You know, at the end of the day, I just want something to sound the way it's supposed to sound. So it could be so severe, it could be nothing. It, it just really depends on... What I'm, what I'm going for, but no, yeah, just whatever it takes. Yeah, nothing's ever off the table. Yeah. Okay, Oliver Kenny is wondering. You just spent a long time tracking every time I die's new album. Was there anything special you did to remain motivated and focused in the studio, like 
nights out or anything? Or are you all just machines and it comes naturally? Let me just say real quick before you answer that, they're machines. <laughs> but uh, you guys work harder than just about anybody I've seen. Yeah, we just worked through that record really hard. There was just a lot to do. We had a lot of songs. And uh, I mean, they're so fun. It's like, it's crazy to call that work. It's a giant joke the whole time. I can't believe that we actually have a record that's as good as it is with how goofy <laughs> that whole process probably was. No, we just have fun while we're doing it. And then I go home and I watch Netflix and I go to bed and I don't really feel like I've been punished. Like those, I mean, Eat one of the best bands in the world to record. One of the best bands to record. And, uh, yeah, we just had a blast. So it wasn't like a struggle to get up in the morning and go to work. It was fun. I love the band, and I love working with all the guys. They're all super talented. That's like a vacation for me. You know how when people say that, like, it's got to be fun? I feel like sometimes when I hear that, like, I have this part of my brain that's like, dude, it's work. Like, it can't always be fun. And while that's true... I always find that my best work is when I'm having fun, the end. that I just do better work when I'm having fun. I think just about everyone's like that. Yeah, I'd say nine out of ten records I do is just hilarious and fun the whole time. I mean, we have a pretty, we have a pretty entertaining working environment. And, you know, I think it keeps it, it just, it just keeps you from making it feel like work. And I think it's why I can do what I, what I do with the hours that I do and not feel like I'm getting dragged through it. Yeah, I don't really know. I think having it, keeping that fun vibe is super important for, for us and making it not feel like work all the time. It, let's just get through what we need to get done. Awesome. Matt Clark is wondering, when blending multiple amps and cabs and mics for guitars, do you use predetermined combinations? Like, for example, a PV into Mesa with a 57 and a Mesa into an Orange with a 421, or are these experimented with and dialed in fresh for every project? Generally, I kind of know pairings that I like. Depends on the guitar sound I'm going for. I'll know the characteristics of the amp and cabs like I have and what I like, what, you know, what their strengths are for specific things. So I'll kind of take an educated guess first. Like, okay, I think this will be cool. And then I think for another amp and cab, this will be cool because it'll give me this sort of characteristic. So I kind of just take an educated guess as a starting point. I put all the mics up, and then I kind of listen to it all, play with all the faders, see if I'm getting what I want, and if I am, cool. If I'm not, then I'll swap something out. So I usually like think about what's what I think is going to work for a given sound, take a shot at a setup, and you know hopefully get it right. But there's definitely been times where I'm like half an hour in, and I'm like, nah, this stinks. We got to pull this cab out. We got to switch this head. We got to try something else. So educated guess and then try again if you blow it. <laughs> That's pretty mm-hmm. much my method. I think soon in the near future, I'm going to try to dedicate more of like a everything set up at once kind of thing though. Because I do think it, I would have fun being able to like quickly go through all of my cabs or all of my heads or kind of, there's just like a ton of gear here and it's like pretty grand of a setup. But I am like, I think in the near future, I'm going to have something like that where I'm able to just be like, let's hear everything all at once and see what the best thing is. Because moving towards some of the digital stuff I've been doing with guitars, with my Tone Hub software and with the tonality thing, I'm definitely starting to feel the benefits of being able to cycle through stuff faster. And I've been using my plug stuff a lot because, oh, I can hear 100 cabs like 
really quick. And even though, yeah, sure, I'm not miking up a cab, I'm not getting whatever that thing is or that difference, I wind up with a better guitar tone because I have more flexibility sometimes. I'm starting to really like that flexibility. I need to get that translated into my analog setup. Otherwise, I'm going to stop using amps and cabs because I, I'm starting to feel like kind of limited by me just taking one guess at stuff. So I don't know, just something to consider. I'm looking at being able to hear everything at once a, a little more frequently now. So right now that's my process. I hope I get to change it soon. Have you seen pictures of Frederick Thorndahl's studio? Oh yeah, I'm like all over it. I've actually <laughs> spoken to the guy who does his like cab switching stuff. That's kind of where I'm gearing up to go towards. Is That is a dream guitar studio yeah i'm pretty into that in the near future i'm gonna have a i don't know if it'll be as like fully guitar worship as his because it's pretty full-on yeah it is definitely full-on is one way to put it yeah <laughs> i'm definitely looking at uh being able to cycle through my gear more efficiently because i'm now noticing the shortcomings in the analog world the way i'm set up right now you know and i want to change that makes sense Nick Cap says, you've mentioned in the past that you base your tempo maps on a live performance of the band. Have there ever been times where you recorded a band live? If not, have you considered doing so? Why or why not? There's been a few records where I just record the band live first, and then I make a tempo map, but I, the band was recorded live. So depending on like, there's a lot of factors, like how tight the band actually plays off the floor, are their push and pull tempo moments a good thing or a bad thing? You know, sometimes it's a really good thing. Knockless is a good example. We did one record where all those like little slowdowns and ramps and their little breakdown setups and everything, like they were playing them well. And it was like making it, trying to like guess what these tempo ramps were, it just like wasn't going to be as cool. So we actually just, they played the songs first. We got to take where the tempos felt right. And then those are the drums. Like, I just kept those drums. I built the tempo map after the fact if I needed to do any kind of editing and then just so I had tempos that were, you know, so I could sync delays and do things like that. And I actually had a grid, which is a part of my workflow. But, I mean, the actual performance was like a live performance. So sometimes I'll do, sometimes I'll do that. Sometimes I'll get a live take, map a tempo, have the band play to that, make sure that feels good, and kind of go the other way. Sometimes it's just all built in the computer. It really depends on, like, the style of the band and then, like, how the band actually sounds, you know? there. I mean, there are great bands that are, you know, have brand new songs that aren't really comfortable with those things yet, like sort of the, the little speed-up, slow-down, so we'll go more manually, and I'll, pro, I'll kind of build out the tempos first. Um, so it just really depends, like on that rehearsal level and like how good it's just sounding. It's, I guess it's a more of a taste call of what I'm hearing, mm -hmm. but um, different approach for different, different, you know, styles and different levels of band live tightness goes a few ways here. If there's anything I hope that people pick up from all the stuff that your inputs out is that there's no one size fits all ever with music or audio. Yeah, I always feel weird because I always get asked, like, what do you do for this? What do you do for that? And I'm like, I kind of just do whatever works. Like, I do, I don't yeah. have a thing. Um, like, I have inclinations to lean on certain stuff. There is no, like, one size fits all. Like, it's always different. And, um, and kids are always looking for, like, that short answer. 
not this question per se, but like I'll just get the random message on yeah. Instagram or something. Of course. And it's like, dude, I don't know. I kind of do everything like, and it, depending on the band, I could, this could go a million ways, you know? So it, it's, it's tricky to answer some of that stuff sometimes, but you just have to kind of be comfortable taking whatever approach you need to get the results you need. Man, that's a funny topic because sometimes, you know, we get those questions and the real answer is it depends. And people don't want to hear that, but that is the real answer to a lot of questions. It depends. Yeah. What's the situation? It's like asking a mechanic, like, hey, how do you make a car go fast? And it's like, I don't know. It could be, there's <laughs> so many things. You know, it's like, there's just so many moving parts and little nuances to the style that you're recording and there's the personalities of the band and their abilities and there's just, yeah, it, it's always like a, it's always this different shifting thing where you just have to make the calls and take your approaches in a way where you're going to think you're going to get the best result. Mm -hmm. Guillermo Garcia is wondering, saying, hi, Will, which of your skills did you have to develop through some type of ear training or has it all come through the experience of making records? And P.S., did you know that Guillermo is the Spanish equivalent to William? And that's where our similarities end. <laughs> I did know that, <laughs> so that's cool. Ear training, I guess, would be, I mean, I for sure, more so on mixing, I guess, you know, like, because I came up as playing in a band and as a guitar player, and I guess I had a bit more of a, had a bit more of a sense of like tones that I thought were cool initially when I first started. Um, I feel like I had a jump on that stuff where it's like, oh, I could put up a 5150 and a Mesa cab and like dial something right away where I was like, yeah, this is cool. I like the, you know, like I was like happier getting instrument tones earlier than I was with my mixes. My mixes were horrible. So it probably took me a lot more time and ear training and developing sort of being able to like hear a mix and go oh there's too much you know 200 hertz in this or like oh yeah there's like some harsh stuff here like that's the stuff where i think you know the experience and like the 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 sort of ear training comes into play i did like a while back i sort of like made a conscious thing where i was like i'm gonna listen to stuff that i think sounds good and i'm gonna try to find bad stuff in it i thought that was like a cool mm -hmm. technique and I also kind of realized that some of my favorite mixes have stuff that just sounds bad in it, but it's like the sum of all the parts. So I don't know that's a whole other tangent, but I mean, there's like a, you know, it, it's kind of like listening and learning why things are cool and not as, I guess I was never really as specific of like, I have to understand high mid frequencies in all instruments now. You know, it's like, I, I've just like developed a sonic palette in my head where I think stuff can sound cool when I place things in certain spots. And it's a lot more experience than it is on like specific training of listening for frequencies and stuff. Obviously I've subconsciously developed it because I can hear these sort of things when I listen to a record or a mix or a, you know, a solo guitar or something like that. So I think it just came along with just doing it for so long and troubleshooting yourself and, you know, fixing your own problems. You just sort of develop that, oh, I know what that is because I've carved that out of 1,000 guitars now so I can hear mm -hmm. it right away, you know. But, um, yeah, I guess no real crazy training, just lots of trial and error for me. Yeah, I, I definitely think that hearing, like when they say use your ears, which is it's another one of those things, like it depends. Like it's, you know, use your ears is kind of the uh, 
the truth all the time. Kind of like it depends is the truth all the time. But uh, it's kind of like exercise or developing, you know, lifting weights or something. It's going to happen gradually over time. And you just have to do it a lot until you really start to develop the skills for for it. It just, like you couldn't do, I think like, all right, I'm going to get one of those EQ ear training courses and every day for 30 minutes, I'm going to listen to 1K and 800. And I mean, sure, that might not hurt, but I don't think that that's how you're going to really learn to be good at EQing things. It's going to be through doing it a thousand times. Yeah, I feel like, I don't even know if that would necessarily make me better at mixing. I think I, I would just be hyper-focused on stuff in a, in, a, in maybe a strange way yep. where I would start, like, looking for problems that maybe weren't even problems, you know? And it's like, so you know, then you get into that rabbit hole of, like, soloing stuff, over-EQing, and I don't know. It's just, uh, for me, I don't think that was the correct path to develop my ears, you know? That thing about uh, starting to create problems where there aren't any is very real. Sure. I've done, I mean, I've done it. I've gotten sucked into a mix. I've spent hours like doing kind of pointless moves like in hindsight. And then I'll go, I don't know. Let me go back to a backup real quick hit play and be like, yeah, this is better. I blew it. Like I got sucked into some strange non-problem that I made for myself. You know, it happens. It's like, I'm sure it happens to everyone, but it's like. It does. Lately, I've been less on like, yeah, what you're doing right now isn't the cause of your problems. There's something else. If you want to hear something a certain way, it's probably not this. There's something else going on. Yep. Kenny Grooms is asking, how was it working with Corey from Norma Jean? He seems to be very involved with production and keeping the vision of their albums. Killer job on All Hail. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Corey's cool. I mean, I wouldn't say, wasn't super involved production-wise. He had opinions. He definitely had a vision for like what the record should be and do. But he was like, he's a hands-off guy. He was just more of like a make sure we get to vibe right on this part. I'll make sure this, I want this to sound like this. Uh, you know, I was thinking this, I was referencing that. So like he definitely, in his mind, he has a very clear direction for um, what he wants Nor Norma Jean to do sonically. But he was like pretty hands-off and he definitely was cool letting me do my thing too. We had fun. He would throw a lot of ideas out, and I would try to, like, translate them into what that means as an uh, engineer, you know. And uh, I think the end result of that record is really cool. It sounds like it's definitely unique, and there's a lot of, like, really interesting stuff that I'm glad I had guys around that were, you know, pushing me to do, too. All right. Uh, two more questions. This is an interesting one from Alan Seso Ochoa, which is, is there a workflow element that you learned while working with machine that you're not using now? And why? I'm sure there's like a ton of stuff by now. I only really worked under him for those couple years. And then, I mean, there's a billion things I'm sure we do differently at this point. You know, I mean, we've, we've actually probably gone in some pretty polarizing directions because I know Machine's gone a, a lot more in the box. And I've, ex I've gotten like way more analog over the years where now... I mean, when we started, he had the mix, the big analog mix rig, and I had the laptop, and now he's in the laptop, and I have the big analog <laughs> mix rig. So, uh, yeah, we've definitely, I mean, there are these, like, global tricks and approaches that I'm sure, like, they're where, I, you know, I've learned a lot from him, so I obviously, like, carry a lot of that stuff, but I think a lot of the sonic 
production, you know, design elements of my mixes have sort of just become my own thing uh, over the years and the way we, like, approach getting sounds and the way we approach, like, you know, dialing mixes and things. We definitely keep, like, there's probably a lot of global themes that are similar, but a lot of the detail stuff would be a bit different now. Yeah, I mean, you're two completely different people. Yeah, and occasionally I show him something that came from me and not him, and he applies it, which is always fun. That's always, like, a huge win. That must be really cool. <laughs> yeah, on the mastering end, like a, year, like, a few years back, I had sort of cracked the code on a few things, and he had asked me to show show him how to do something once, and I was like, oh, this is a good, this is a cool day. <laughs> yeah, that is a cool day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel like now we exist in our own spaces, you know, but he kicks ass. I definitely learned a lot. Uh, last question, and a lot of people ask this, so I feel like I owe it to them to ask because it's come up a bunch. Tommy Evans says, Will was featured on a drummer-focused podcast called The Downbeat last November where he mentioned he was working on making drum samples. Any update on that? I cannot comment on that yet. One day I hope that we will be able to release drum samples. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect answer. (laughs) It's not like a secret that I wanted to make sure that if I were to ever release a, a drum product that I did it correctly. Let's just say... I don't. I literally don't know what I can say without getting in trouble. Well, let's just say it hasn't happened yet, and uh, when it does happen, everyone will know. Yes, I currently do not have a drum library for sale, and I hope that maybe I do in the future, maybe this year. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, will let's plug stuff. On Monday, Fit for an Autopsy releases a new song. It's called Fear Tomorrow. What's the exact date of that release? Monday, April sixth. So it'll it will be out for a few days by the time this airs. So please yep. check that song out. Uh, and has a new record available for pre-order now. Please go check out my other band. And we are putting out a record in June. And please check out my plugin, STL Tonality, Will Putney Guitar Suite. And I also have some Tone Hub signature guitar and bass packs that are available now which are also extremely cool. Very stoked on the way those came out. So STL Tones and Ibanez Guitars are doing something really cool while everybody's kind of bored at home. We're doing a contest, sick riff contest. All you have to do, load up either my STL Tonality plugin or my Tone Hub plugin, record a video of yourself playing a sick riff, upload it to the internet. Instagram would be great. Tag Will Putney, tag Ibanez tag STL Tones. I'm going to pick the sickest riff and you win a free Ibanez guitar. Everybody's, it's worldwide. Be patient with shipping because it's chaos right now, but we'll pick it within the next 10 days. We'll let everybody get their submissions in, have a nice Easter, do all that, and then we'll pick a winner. I'm going to pick the sickest riff and I'm going to send you this free Ibanez guitar. That is awesome. I'm going to plug something real quick because I don't want to put out too many details about this, but we made a course in December that isn't going to come out anytime soon. But if you've watched my Monuments Boot Camp that I released on Creative Live, which I know a ton of you have, just think about that, but with Will Putney. And with the difference being that on the Monuments, I was kind of remaking a song that already existed. In this one... It's some real-time shit, and uh, it is deep and intense. So just, uh, you know, just want to plant that seed for whenever it does come out. 
it has to be the most full-on recording class that I could have possibly made. Yeah, it, it's intense. <laughs> I can't imagine anything that we missed. I mean, it covered every single part of the process from like a band walking into like basically having a master so far weeks of filming for this thing so yeah uh and i have made a lot of recording classes so i will second that it it goes hard <laughs> for sure yeah it's like an overload like if you have any interest in anything i do I, any recording technique or any part of my process, it's got, it's got to be in here. I literally can't think of something we didn't include. Yeah, I can't either. I mean, that was, was like three weeks. Yeah, that was that was a lot. <laughs> I don't want to do that again. <laughs> that was full on. Yeah, that, that man. Also, that was after I had been on the road for six weeks straight. So it was an intense time period. Yeah, but, uh, it was cool. I'm glad we made it. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, me I too. I do actually, if I was... If if it was me 10 years ago and I saw that video from like one of my favorite producers, I would freak out because it is so comprehensive. I think it's going to be cool. I'm really, I'm excited to get it out. That's why we do this, man. Uh, this is the shit I wish existed in 2005. Oh, yeah. I'd probably be a little further along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it helps some people skip some, some bad years. But uh, Will, again, thank you very much. No problem, man. I appreciate the time, and uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALEVY URM Audio, and of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.